welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. We are back today with a discussion on another ASAP clinical policy, this one titled Critical Issues in the Evaluation and Management of Adult Patients Presenting to the Emergency Department with Suspected Acute Venous Thromboembolic Disease. And our guest today is Dr. Stephen Wolfe. Dr. Wolf comes to us from the Department of Emergency Medicine at Denver Health Medical Center, also affiliated with the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He's a professor of emergency medicine and vice chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Denver Health. In addition, he is the current chair of the ASAP Clinical Policies Committee and the subcommittee chair of the venous thromboembolic policy. So he's just about the best person you could get to talk about this particular policy. We asked him to start by explaining a little bit of the background behind why this policy was necessary and what questions they were looking to answer. This is one of our bigger policies. It has a huge body of literature that we target. I would like to give credit to the whole subcommittee, the whole committee, but definitively the whole subcommittee, Sigrid Hahn, Lauren Netwit, Ali Raja, and Scott Silvers, and Mike Brown, who were all instrumental in helping this clinical policy come to fruition. So as I mentioned before, we take a critical question approach because the body of literature is just too broad to take a a symptom-based or even a disease-specific approach. So we choose a disease, and then we choose the critical questions that we think will be most impactful to to emergency medicine. Um, This specific policy, we had two diagnostic questions in adult patients with suspected acute PE. Can a clinical prediction rule be used to identify a group of patients at very low risk for the diagnosis of PE for whom no additional diagnostic workup is required? This question was specifically designed to get at this fact of who can we not work up? Just who can we walk in the room, do a history and physical and basic routine bedside metrics or vital signs and and the whatnot and walk out of the room and say, I've excluded the diagnosis of of PE. That's an incredible saver compared to how the traditional practice has been. the next question, in adult patients with low to moderate pretest probability for acute PE, does a negative age-adjusted D-dimer result identify a group of patients at very low risk for the diagnosis of PE for whom no additional diagnostic workup is required? We've all been in the setting where we struggle with using the D-dimer in the setting of patients of advanced age. And as they get older, how much can we rely on that? Um, And so we tackled that question and reviewed the literature with respect to that. These are the two questions that I think really align with EQUAL goals of reducing imaging and reducing avoidable imaging. So there are three other questions that we tackled. I'm not going to go over those today, but one of them is on the management of patients with subsegmental PE. Is it safe to withhold anticoagulation? The other is on the treatment (coughs) and discharge of of patients diagnosed with acute PE or DVT, and what's the ideal, uh, what's the ideal anticoagulant? But if you want more information on those those latter three management or therapeutic questions, you can go to the policy on the website, and it's it's downloadable for free. So let's take a second and talk about how the diagnosis and evaluation of pulmonary embolism is unique. Much of the current research in pulmonary embolism is actually diagnostically advanced. 
it doesn't push us to just basically say, does this person have the disease or not? It actually employs a, a Bayesian model where you utilize a probability of disease, a diagnostic likelihood, and then you can apply a test to determine what's the definitive likelihood of disease after considering the results of the test. So the critical point that we need to know is what's our testing threshold? If we are below the testing threshold, before we even initiate a workup, we can stop. If we've considered the disease process to be essentially ruled out to an acceptable level, walking out of the room with a history and physical, we can stop. If we're above the testing threshold when we walk out of the room, we need to think about what tests do we use. And tests aren't necessarily always a blood test or a, a radiologic imaging test. It can be something like a clinical decision rule. So that's where I think the D-dimer and the clinical decision rule has have significant impact because they can allow us to use the results of the either the D-dimer or the clinical decision rule to push us below or leave us above the testing threshold. So we talk about this testing threshold in venous thromboembolic disease. And oftentimes we use a 2% cutoff, meaning that if our suspicion of disease, if the probability of disease when everything's said and done is less than 2%, we probably don't need to evaluate and further work up the diagnosis. So when we consider the data around, around clinical decision rules or, or the performance of the D-dimer, or even for that matter, the performance of a CT scan, we, we consider this testing threshold of 2%, whether or not you're above it or below it, to determine if you can stop or you need to continue the workup. So you can look and see how this, how does this actually come to bear as we play out, right? You have a pretest probability of disease. You walk out of the room and you think, oh, this, this person probably has about a 15% probability of disease. And based on the diagnostic characteristics of a given test, clinical decision rule, D-dimer, CT, or whatever, that, that test will have a negative likelihood ratio, and that will generate, you can combine the pretest probability with the negative likelihood ratio to have an understanding of what the post-test probability will be. And you want that post-test probability to be below 2% to feel comfortable and, and to meet a standard of care that, uh, that uh, veno, venous thromboembolic disease is ruled out. So let's talk a little bit about the critical questions themselves. In adult patients with suspected acute PE, can a clinical prediction rule be used to identify a group of patients at very low risk for the diagnosis of PE for whom no additional diagnostic workup is required? Right. This is a, a question that helps that if we can answer it, it will help everyone when they walk in the room and they have the vague complaints and they walk out of the room and they say, say to themselves, do I need to work this patient up for a PE? We went to the literature after, after identifying our search terms and we identified 47 articles, ultimately pulling 19 to be graded that were pertinent to the question itself. 
and we identified four class two, four class three, and then we actually determined that 11 of the studies did not meet the methodological rigor that we hold to be included in the, in the content analysis or the data analysis. The pulmonary embolism rule-out criteria was really the only clinical decision rule that was widely researched that targeted or that answered this question. And I just want to take a second to review what the PERC rule includes. It includes eight separate variables. The original derivation study had 25, I believe, variables, but it, it includes eight separate variables, including age less than 50, pulse rate less than 100, an SAO2 of over 94%, and that's at sea level. I, at altitude, we use 90%. No recent trauma or surgery, no unilateral leg swelling, no previous PEZBT, no hormone use, and no hemoptysis. If all of those are negative, if the patient meets all of those criteria, then the person is con or the patient is considered PERC negative and potentially can be excluded from the need for further diagnostic evaluation. So one of the questions when we go to when we went to the literature and we identified these eight articles that constituted, I think, eleven different cohorts, we wanted to know, okay, well the PERC exists and you have the eight criteria, but does it apply to all patients? Does it apply to the patient who has, who comes in hemodynamically or maybe hypotensive with a history of cancer, profoundly short of breath that my gut tells me is at super high risk for massive pulmonary embolism? So when we looked at the data, we tried to stratify it into different patient cohorts, either a low-risk cohort or an undifferentiated cohort. The original derivation study of the PERC data came out of a, or was targeting a low-risk cohort. And so when you put these cohorts side by side, you can see that in general, the post-test probability for having a PE in a low-risk population is somewhere around 1.8 to 1.9% if the pulmonary embolism rule-out criteria are all negative or, or the patient meets all of the pulmonary embolism rule-out criteria. There's one outlying study that I need to point out, and that's Hoogly. Uh, this was a study done out of Europe. It had a very high, a very high incidence of pulmonary embolism, and it was retrospectively applied to a database. So whether or not those two factors dramatically impacted the, uh, the results, you can't definitively say, but we felt like it was enough of an outlier that we needed to call it out in our study. And for the listeners, the article that Dr. Wolf is mentioning, I will drop the link in the show notes, but it's from Hughley et al. in the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis from 2011 in February titled, The Pulmonary Embolism Rule-Out Criteria, PERC Rule, Does Not Safely Exclude Pulmonary Embolism. There's also a really good table in the policy paper itself that lists all of the studies that he's talking about and the relative information about them. So I definitely recommend that you take a look at that as he's finishing the rest of the discussion. When you look at the undifferentiated cohorts, you see that the post-test probability creeps up some, probably closer to 5%, specifically when you look at the external studies and making, making the PERC less useful in those patient population. So Dr. Wolf, a question that I have for you, something that has come up very frequently throughout the course of this entire ASAP equal series is clinical decision rules, guidelines and policies, they're all very easy to misapply. Can you tell us where 
the holes in the evidence are and how you actually apply decision rules and then bring it back to this particular policy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's critical when you think about clinical decision rules to understand what's the cohort that they are most or what's the cohort that they are derived and validated to apply to. Misapplication of a clinical of a clinical decision rule can lead to either a misdiagnosis or b overtesting. And specifically in this with the perk Overtesting is probably the area that we're most concerned about with misapplication of the PERC because sometimes what people do is they may come in and say, oh, well, you know, anyone with shortness of breath, chest pain, or an elevated heart rate or thoracocardiovascular complaint needs to have the PERC rule applied to them. And if the PERC rule, if the patient doesn't PERC out, then they should be evaluated. And that's not true. We do know that 97% of patients with PE present with shortness of breath, chest pain, or elevated heart rate. But if you work up all of them, you're going to be working working up a lot more patients than you initially intended to work up if you just use your, your gestalt, so to speak. So I think it's really important that you appropriately apply the clinical decision rule. Otherwise, you're going to lose its efficacy. So ultimately, we we came up with our critical question or the answer or the recommendation to our critical question that for patients who are at low risk for acute PE, use the pulmonary embolism rule-out criteria to exclude the diagnosis without further diagnostic testing. I think a lot of people prior to this policy had, had started to explore their comfort of using the PERC. But I think that the clinical policy and this recommendation specifically has allowed people to to broadly implement use of of the PERC. And what we see is with implementation of the PERC, we see about a 10% reduction in people going on to further evaluation. And specifically, you see about there have been studies that show about a 10% reduction in radiographic evaluation. So let's move on to the next critical question. This is in adult patients with low to intermediate pretest probability for a QPE. Does a negative age-adjusted D-dimer result identify a group of patients at very low risk for the diagnosis of PE for whom no additional diagnostic testing is required? We know that people of advanced age are a vulnerable population, both diagnostically, they are frequently subject to being overworked up, overdiagnosed. And that overdiagnosis puts them at significant risk for adverse events from the from the evaluation process. We also know that there is an age-related increase in the D-dimer assay, which directly results in a decline in the sensitivity when you just consider the conventional cutoff. So what's been proposed in various venues is that, well, what if we could adjust our D-dimer result with respect to age and try to preserve a sensitivity without sacrificing its specificity. So if we could preserve its sensitivity and maintain a significantly low miss rate, then we could use the D-dimer more effectively in this older population. After a literature search, we identified 59 articles, had 42 of them pulled to be graded, and ultimately, after the grading process, three came out of class two, seven of class three, and 32 of them were uh, considered not methodologically sound enough to, to drive any recommendation. You know, the goal of doing of this age-adjusted approach is really to improve the diagnostic efficiency. 
reduce unnecessary testing and reduce test-related complications that I think in particular elderly patients are at a greater risk for. I think there's also another significant benefit and goal of this, and that is to be a, a steward of healthcare resources. If we can if we can maximize the use of the D-dimer in an older population and reduce unnecessary workups, we can be a better better stewards of healthcare resources. A lot of institutions use different D-dimer assays, and I want to be very deliberate in talking about this, this next point, and that is that there are two different ways in which D-dimer assays measure the concentration of the fibrin split product in the serum. Right? One's a D-dimer unit and one's a fibrin equivalent unit. I don't pretend to be a pathologist or a lab act. This has to do with the assays themselves and how the, how the binding of the reagents occur to the D-dimer unit. But essentially, you get two different results depending on whether or not you're using the D-dimer unit or the fibrin equivalent or the uh, the fibrin equivalent unit such that you have to know how your lab performs the assay do they use D-dimer units or fibrin equivalent units because you need that's what's going to drive the ultimate age adjusted D-dimer that you're going to consider applying there are two separate strategies that people use. Some, some attempt to use a fixed age cutoff, and some attempt to use an incremental age cutoff. And we reviewed data on both of them. There were 13 separate cohorts that came out of these 10 studies. And those cohorts can be stratified based on whether or not they used an age-adjusted on a yearly basis or a fixed cutoff. If we look at the fixed cutoffs, you can see that most of the studies that use a fixed cutoff use the mark of, of 100 using the D-dimer unit. At 100, we can see that the miss rate for many of these was somewhere around 5 to 6%. And that's probably too much for us to accept as a safety feature. When you look at the age-adjusted D-dimers based on specific years of age, it's a different picture, though. And you can see that the, that the range of miss rates is anywhere from zero up to 7.1%. Now, that 7.1%, that Fritz study, is somewhat of an outlier. It's a European study that was, again, retrospective. It was a very sick cohort with a very high incidence of pulmonary embolism. If you take out from these 10 studies that look at an annual or a yearly age-adjusted adjustment, if you take out those that, that apply it to all pretest probabilities and just consider those that are applying it to, to non-high pretest probabilities, the miss rate is a much more acceptable miss rate that's less than the 2% threshold. So we can say that an age-adjusted D-dimer in a non-high probability patient cohort is the safe approach. It has a low miss rate. We can also say that it's beneficial to the patient's workup, that it actually impacts and allows us to avoid radiologic imaging in upwards of 25% additional patients. So to answer this critical question, we came up with a level B recommendation that says in patients older than 50 deemed to be 
low or intermediate risk for acute PE, clinicians may use a negative age-adjusted D-dimer result to exclude the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. And that's going to wrap up the podcast. I do just want to review the two primary recommendations that Dr. Wolf mentioned today. Both are level B recommendations. The first is, for patients who are at low risk for acute PE, use the PERC to exclude diagnosis without further diagnostic testing. The second is, in patients older than 50 years deemed to be low or intermediate risk for acute PE, clinicians may use a negative age-adjusted D-dimer result to exclude the diagnosis of PE. There's far more in this clinical policy paper, and it's actually laid out really nicely. It's worth taking a look at. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal podcast series through the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine blog, www.aliem.com, or the Alium feed in your favorite podcasting platform.